Oh, just a review for those who weren't here this morning. Uh, our tradition in Charlotte Chapel, which is a long tradition, and I'll be the last one to break any traditions, as you may know, um, is that we have a verse for the year that we focus on, uh, and it's really the focus for that whole year. And this is our 200th anniversary, and I think perhaps a very appropriate verse that reminds us that above all else, we need the Holy Spirit, and we need to be about the work of witnessing for Christ. So our verse for the year is Acts 1, verse 8. There's a kind of abbreviated form here. We'll be looking at the full version later. Um, Ali McLeod has kind of been working very hard on working out a verse of the year card. And the verse card that you see on the screen for those who are present here, and if you're listening by tape, you'll just have to use your imagination. Uh, but uh, this card will be available. It's at the printers at the moment, and there'll be cards and bookmarks next week so you can remember the verse and uh, keep it in a prominent uh, place. We'll also be launching a series into Acts, the, the book of Acts, after Easter, uh, up until Easter, we're concluding Luke's first edition, first volume, which is the Gospel of Luke, and then continuing with Acts after Easter. Uh, so just let me remind you of what we looked at this morning, for those who weren't here this morning. I, I try and do this, it's not to embarrass you. If you weren't here this morning, just stick your hand over, it's just an interesting statistical Ah, that's probably a good half of people. Good. Uh, you're welcome in the morning as well, and it's nice to see you in the evening. So, uh, but uh, just to see who was here and who wasn't here this morning. Uh, if we look at the verse in full, we saw this morning that this verse contains two promises or predictions from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just look at it carefully. Uh, you'll see the words on the screen and in your Bible. But you will receive power. There's the first promise. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and secondly, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we learnt it this morning with the children, and when we said power, we went power and witness like this. I hope you can remember the verse and that you'll know it by heart fairly soon if you don't already. And what we saw this morning was that these two promises are inextricably linked together. You can't separate them. First of all, witnessing for Jesus is only possible after receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is why the apostles we saw this morning were told to wait in Jerusalem, even though they'd been with Jesus for three years, even though they'd ministered before in his name, Jesus said, don't go out into the streets, wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit which you'll receive a few days' time. And secondly, witnessing for Jesus, and this is where we're going to focus this evening, witnessing for Jesus is the inevitable outcome of a person who has been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is why immediately on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon those waiting apostles and those people gathered, 120 people in that room, must have been a remarkable experience, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, and they didn't just sit there and look around and say, what should we do now? Immediately they went out into the streets and began to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the waiting crowds, the watching crowds, listening crowds, in a language that they'd never learned before. So we looked this morning about... Uh, this first challenge, that we need the power of the Holy Spirit if we're to be witnesses for Christ. Uh, now we're going to turn to the second half, which is you'll be my witnesses when you receive that power of the Holy Spirit. See, there are many people today who claim to have had experiences of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they may describe them in all sorts of terms. Uh, there may have been all sorts of features emotionally. There's nothing wrong with that. You'd expect that when the power of God comes upon a person. But... If you receive the Holy Spirit in power, 
it will make you, first and foremost, a powerful witness for Jesus. You see, when Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses. He did not say, you may be my witnesses, or you can be my witnesses, or you could be my witnesses. No, he said, when you receive power, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And that's all I really want to emphasize this evening, but I'm going to talk for another 20 minutes or so and explain more about it, all right? In case you thought I was just going to stop suddenly at that point. Okay, so what we need to do is what we did this morning, which we always need to do, is to look at the verse in context, and then we're going to look at the wider context of how this was fulfilled in the most amazing and remarkable way in those years following the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. It's a very exciting story that we'll look at in more detail after Easter, God willing, if the Lord Jesus does not return before then. So let's first of all read uh, Acts 1, 1 to 11. You will need a Bible, as you did this morning. Let's see who I can embarrass this evening. No, I better not. Uh, I embarrassed a Bible college student this morning who hasn't got a Bible. So um, if you've not got a Bible, don't feel embarrassed, but you do need one because we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. So I'm looking at you all, making sure that you've all got a Bible. If you haven't, just wave your hand and ask someone to pass one to you. Would you mind doing that? Thank you very much. It's page 1092. For those who don't know where Acts is, it's in the New Testament after the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then we come to Acts. Acts 1, we're going to read the first 11 verses. Here's Luke writing. In my former book, Theophilus, that was the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, his very last words, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now this is God's word. And notice, as we read the passage together, when Jesus tells the disciples, in a few days' time, you're going to have this remarkable experience, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, they immediately jump to a conclusion. They ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, you need to know a bit of Jewish background to know why they would ask a question like that. Well, they knew the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew that God had promised in the last days He was going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh, and they associated that with the restoration of the great nation of Israel as the centre of God's plan. They thought this was the end of the story, the great final events. 
And Jesus, notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, no, that will never happen. You've got it all wrong. What he says is, that concerns something that need not concern you. That's not your priority. That's not your focus. But, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's what you're going to be about. This is what's going to happen after the Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's our verse in context. You see that? And what follows in the rest of the book of the Acts is the fulfillment of how this was worked out in the history of the church for the next few decades. As they carry out the commission. Uh, So let's look a little more closely at how it actually happened. Alright? I want to say three things. First of all, notice the focus of their witness. The focus of their witness. They are to be witnesses. For what? Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. They're to witness about Jesus. A witness is someone who gives evidence about something he or she has seen and heard and experienced. So, every time these apostles speak, what do they speak about? They're people who speak about only one thing. There there are some people who who are like this, aren't they? They've got one particular interest in life. And as soon as you meet them, they begin to talk about it. And almost every time you speak with them, they come back to the same subject. It might be someone they love. It might be a football team that they're very keen on. It might be a particular hobby or career that they have. But these people, their focus is is to be about Jesus and what they know of Jesus, what they've experienced of Jesus. Now, um, let's just look at this very quickly through the book of Acts. And the the verse will come on the screen. uh, But but notice, as you go through the book of Acts, this word witness comes again and again and again. In fact, 39 times in the book of Acts, uh, the word witness and witnessing occurs. So we saw this morning, the first thing that happens on the day of Pentecost, when the crowds ask what's happening... Peter gives this amazing message and he's focused about Jesus and he finally comes to his point that this Jesus who was crucified, God has raised Jesus to life, this Jesus to life, and he says, we're all witnesses. We know it's true. We've seen him. We've experienced it. If you go to the next chapter, to chapter 4, Peter explains to the religious authorities how a crippled beggar has been healed in the name of Jesus. And he comes to the end of his message to them and he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Acts 3 verse 15. Uh, Later on, they're persecuted for continuing to speak about Jesus. They're told to keep quiet. Here's what they say in Acts 5. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed, by hanging him on a tree, God had exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You see, connection with the Spirit and with witness. Uh, The story progresses. Peter, the apostle, we'll see more details in a moment, is called to go and speak the good news to a Roman centurion named Cornelius. What does he do when he gets there? This is not a Jewish person. This is a Roman centurion, an official. He has the same message about Jesus. 
We are witnesses, he tells him, of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day, caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We are witnesses of these things. And then later still, the Apostle Paul is on his great missionary journey, the very first journey, the very first message that Luke records in Acts 13. This is what he says. But God raised him from the dead, Jesus, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Now notice something interesting here. Paul is not a first-hand eyewitness. But he's referring to other people who are accurate eyewitnesses. The message is already being carried on to the next generation, as it were. Now, what about us? We were not present at this wonderful period between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We didn't see him ourselves. But we have accurate information that has been passed on down the generations of those who actually saw Jesus on many occasions when he was raised from the dead. But we also witness out of our own personal experience because the message of these witnesses says, God has raised this Jesus from the dead. If you put your trust in him, turn from your sin, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You'll know what it is to know God yourself. You'll have something to witness about. Uh, let me just give you one example from John, the Apostle John, his first letter about this whole area of witness and experience. This is how he begins. Notice, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, this is eyewitness, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it. We testify it, uh, to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, this life that God offers which was with the Father and has appeared to us, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, you see what he's saying? He's saying, this is accurate evidence of who Jesus is, what Jesus offers. When you preach this message, if you receive the message, you enter into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you know eternal life, you experience it for yourselves. Which is why 2,000 years on, although it's many generations since those first eyewitnesses, we can proclaim the message and I can say to you, as I said this morning and I say again with great joy, if you're another Christian this evening, if you turn from your sin and put your trust in this Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead, he will give you life and you can know life in all its fullness, a living relationship with the living God. Now, it's very important you keep these two pieces of evidence in mind because Christians emphasize either one or the other. Let me summarize it from what we sing, all right? We sing two kinds of songs as Christians. There's a song in Mission Praise which simply states the facts. It goes, these are the facts as we have received them. These are the facts that a Christian believes. This is the basis for all our preaching. Christ died for sinners and rose from the grave. That's Evidence. But we also sing, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. In other words, there's a personal experience based on the evidence. And you need both together. That is the focus of our witness. The focus of our witness is Jesus. 
And only if you know this Jesus can you then in turn be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, you should be a witness because you talk about what you've experienced and the evidence for it. And that's why the evidence for the New Testament, the accuracy of what is written here, is so important. If you can undermine this, if you can prove that Jesus' bones are somewhere in in Palestine, that he never rose from the grave, then the Apostle Paul says, you're a fool. You're living an illusion. You're not forgiven at all. It's just a myth. But we believe the facts are true because they stand up to scrutiny. However, notice our verse doesn't stop there. Notice, secondly, after the focus of the witness, which is Jesus, notice the spread of their witness. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses, he says, in Jerusalem, where you are, in all Judea and Samaria, and the two provinces were related together under Roman administration, and to the ends of the earth. It's been pointed out by many people that if you read the book of Acts, Uh, Those three stages are a kind of index of contents of the book of Acts. The first place where they're to witness is in Jerusalem. And if you read Acts 2 right through to the beginning of Acts 8, it's all about witnessing in Jerusalem. It began on the day of Pentecost. You remember that wonderful occasion? The Holy Spirit was poured out. And if you look down into Acts chapter 2... I won't go through all the names, but there's a description there. The people say, we can all hear the word of God in our own language. And there's a description of where all the people came from. Well, I will read them. Parthians, Medes, Elamites. There's a map on the screen. shows where they were. Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, Cretans, Arabs. People from the known Roman world were all present on the day of Pentecost. So although their message was to go to the ends of the earth, in kind of microcosm on this wonderful day, the ends of the earth were already in Jerusalem for this great feast. And presumably the 3,000 who heard and received the message went back home with this wonderful message to the ends of the earth. The process already begins. However, the witnesses are not to remain in Jerusalem. And so following the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, They begin in Jerusalem, and then the message begins to go out into Judea and Samaria. Acts 8 verse 1 says, On that day when Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Notice that the geographical focus begins to shift outwards, like like dropping a, a big rock in the pond. The ripples begin to spread outwards. But not only that, the work of witnessing shifts because the apostles remain in Jerusalem. The witness is now carried by next generation believers who carry it into Judea and Samaria. And so if you read Acts 8 to 12, we have the account of the ministry of people like Philip the evangelist and Peter who went out into Samaria and Judea preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. And then from chapter 13, or the end of chapter 12, Luke's account describes the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth through the missionary vision of this remarkable church in Antioch who send out Paul and Barnabas on this first great missionary journey. A second journey follows, a third journey follows. Finally, Paul reaches into Europe itself as he goes across to Macedonia and Greece. And the story concludes, if you get to the end of Acts chapter 28, where does it finish? It finishes at the heart of the empire. 
There's the Apostle Paul in Rome, awaiting trial, preaching every day the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's a very close connection here if you read a parallel between Luke and Acts. If you look at Luke, the story of Jesus begins in Galilee and ends in Jerusalem. When we come to Acts, Jesus continues his work through the Apostles, beginning in Jerusalem and then ending up in Rome the heart of the empire, and we know from Paul's letter to the Romans, he's still planning to go to Spain and beyond. We're never quite sure whether he actually made it. Uh, And if you look at the map, and I found one that I managed to scan in, at the end of the first century we see this remarkable spread of the gospel through those present on the day of Pentecost, through those scattered as believers after the martyrdom of Stephen, through Paul's missionary journeys, the gospel goes out in this remarkable way. Now, now the remarkable thing is, this is not some high-tech organized campaign. This is not something with a great, you know, financial clout and there's a group of strategists sit down and plan how they're going to do it. This is ordinary people going out, spreading the good news of Jesus. And after the New Testament, many of us are ignorant of what happened after the New Testament, uh, the the ripples just continue to spread out. If, If you read contemporary historians from the time, you know what, the one thing they said about Christians is a wonderful quote I haven't got it with me to hand, but something like this. One one critical writer says, everywhere these Christians go, they gossip their gospel. The women washing their clothes at the riverside gossip their gospel. The men in the marketplace, they talk about their gospel of Jesus Christ. Everywhere they go. Here's the end of the second century. Tertullian, a great uh, Christian leader, he wrote something called an apology, which doesn't mean he's apologizing, it means the defense of the Christian faith. This is what he says. We are but of yesterday. We have filled every place among you. Cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you except the temple of your gods. This is just, is really, I just cannot exaggerate how remarkable it is how these ordinary Christians equipped with nothing but a message and the power of the Holy Spirit conquered, as it were, at least philosophically and religiously, the Roman world of their day. What a remarkable story. And yet I want to say something thirdly and finally, that we should not think that this was accomplished easily or smoothly. So notice thirdly and finally, the challenges to their witness. You see, as they went out with this message, as they began to witness... There were challenges which, which threatened to thwart their witness and prevent the spread of the gospel. Uh, and, and they came from two directions, one obvious and one not quite so obvious. Uh, the first and most obvious challenge was external opposition. Uh, no sooner have the apostles gone out into the streets than immediately the religious authorities, the same ones who crucified Jesus, persecuted him, persecuted his followers. They begin with threats when the apostles are called before them. Uh, who after hearing evidence against them, deliver their verdict. They called them in and commanded them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. Not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And when this fails, the apostles are then, uh, then meet with violence and further threats. They call the apostles in next chapter and have them flogged. They then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And eventually this violence leads to death with the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is the first martyr. The word martyr is the same word for witness because death and witness were so closely associated. 
and so closely linked. And Stephen's death was then followed by the death of the first of the twelve apostles, eleven apostles. Uh, James was executed by Herod in Acts 12, verse 2. See, wherever the witnesses go, witnessing about Jesus, they meet with opposition. They meet with persecution, threats, violence, death. Uh, if you read the Luke's account of the missionary career of the Apostle Paul, you see that everywhere Paul went, he faced opposition. And you can read that in Acts. In fact, Acts is not a full account. If you read what Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, there's quite a bit in there about persecution that's not mentioned by Luke in Acts. Here he is comparing his own experience with people who thought they were super apostles. He says in 2 Corinthians 11:23, I've worked much harder than them, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 39 lashes which often kill people. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now you might think external opposition would silence their witness and, and bring the gospel to a halt, which is what they were hoping, of course. But of course it didn't happen. Notice the apostles' response. First of all, they responded in prayer. Acts 4 verses 23 to 30, in which when they met for prayer, they didn't ask for the persecution to stop, they asked for renewed boldness to keep on witnessing. Now, Lord, they've prayed, consider their threats, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, Acts 4:29. And notice the result, they received a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit's power, because they were asking for the right reason. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Renewed persecution results in renewed prayer and praise. Acts 5, the apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, what did they do? They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So, rather than silencing their witness, persecution had the opposite effect. Again, Tertullian, famous words, Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. It's like the seed of the church. When it's sown, it produces fruit. So, before we move on from this point, let's just ask a question about our own witness. Many of us are afraid to witness because of what people might say to us. But how many of us actually faced opposition? Does our witness meet with any opposition? If not, why not? Could it be that our witness is either non-existent or so bland, doesn't challenge anybody or anything? And where there is no witness, there is no power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is given to enable us to witness boldly. And in fact, opposition is a sign, a positive sign, that God is at work for the enemy is also at work. But notice also, secondly, the other challenge that came to him, which was not just external, but internal from the attitudes within the church. You see, the commission of Jesus to the apostles was beginning in Jerusalem, not ending in Jerusalem. One wonders, often wonders, I've often thought about it, I wonder for how long the apostles would have remained in Jerusalem, limiting their witness to Jewish people, if it were left to them. After all, things were happening. People were coming to faith in Christ. But their calling was to go beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, let alone the ends of the earth. So as we've seen, God uses this persecution following the death of Stephen for the purpose of disturbing the status quo. Acts 8, 1 again, on that day, 
great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But it's not just a shift in location that's needed. There also needs to be a shift in attitude. You see, that early church was almost entirely Jewish or Jewish converts. And the assumption of the apostles in the early church was that if a Gentile by any means wanted to become a Christian, they first had to go through Jewish practices like circumcision, keeping the law of God, keeping the Mosaic law and customs. And what was needed was a radical change of attitude to break the barriers of prejudice. And the story is a wonderful story of how the Apostle Peter, the leader of the church, had to be convinced by the Holy Spirit that the gospel really was for Gentiles. You remember the story, if you know the book of Acts, uh, that he had a vision, and in the vision he was told, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And he's then directed to this Roman centurion of all people called Cornelius. Now for a Jew to even go into a home of a Roman centurion would have been unthinkable for any Gentile. But Peter goes into the home because he's now been convinced, he's now changed his attitude. Here's the first thing he says to Cornelius. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Acts 10, verse 34. And he begins to share the good news of Jesus with Cornelius and his household and suddenly to their amazement the Holy Spirit comes upon them as it came upon the apostles at the day of Pentecost. It's a key moment in the fulfillment of the great commission to go to the ends of the earth and to meet people who are not Jewish by background, but Gentiles. And so Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem, who are hearing what's happening, and they're very critical of what he's done, the big church conference, and he explains how the Holy Spirit has guided him, how the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his household, and the conclusion of the church is, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So that the center of gravity shifts from Jerusalem and a Jewish-only church, out to the Roman Empire, an inclusive church with Gentiles. Now you may say, well, what's the importance of that? Simply this, if it hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here this evening. Or if we were, we'd have a very different style of worship to what we have now. It's very much more a Jewish style of worship. It's because the Gospel reached out to Gentiles that the Gospel eventually came to these shores and to the ends of the earth. Now as we think about facing up to the challenge of Acts 1.8. We face similar challenges to our witness for Jesus today. It's all too easy to be comfortable with the status quo, to be settled in our own comfort zone, to rest in the assurance that people can come and hear. But the commission is not come and hear, the commission is also go and tell. How often we focus in our churches and in a church like Charlotte Chapel on our own needs instead of those of others. How much more priority we give to maintenance than we do to mission. How much priority do we give to tending the sheep who are in the fold rather than seeking the lost sheep outside of the fold. Now I'm not saying we shouldn't look after the people within the fold and that we should all down tools and just ignore one another. No, we need that, but we also need at the same time to be reaching out to other people. You can do a kind of test of this, of how our, where our priorities lie. Uh, there's two tests. One is look at the pastor's diary and see how much time is devoted to the flock and how much is devoted to the mission, those outside the flock. 
The other one is look at the church budget and see what percentage is given to people outside of the fold and what percentage we devote to people within the fold. I think it was Bishop Stephen Neal who famously said, the Christian church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of the non-members. Christian church is the only institution which exists for the benefit of the non-members. And we can also assume with certain prejudices in our mind that the gospel is for us and people like us and that some people are outside of the scope of the gospel. Or if they come in, we expect them to adopt and adapt to our own lifestyle and practices which may be cultural rather than Christian. And the truth of the matter is, today, the centre of world Christianity is no longer in the West. Read Philip Jenkins' books on the spread of the Christian faith. Uh, He points out that demographically, the centre of the Christian faith is somewhere, probably in Nigeria, in West Africa, with a Nigerian woman in her mid-twenties. That's the typical Christian today. The gospel is moving on, moving forward. And down through the history of the church, there have always been periods where this growth has stagnated. Where the church of Jesus Christ has stagnated and failed to grow. Where this growth has been arrested. And I simply want to put to you that as we come to our 200th anniversary, I'm hoping this is going to be a year of evangelism. It's going to be a year of outreach. A year of reaching out beyond our own boundaries. You see, the reason why we lose that is because we lose the focus on our calling. Let me remind you of the verse again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, when you lose focus on your priority, you lose the power that is given for that priority. You lose the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need surely afresh the power of the Holy Spirit. If you look in our program this week, we have a week of prayer uh, beginning tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 7.30 till 8.15. You can come anytime you like and leave when you have to. You even get some bread rolls and coffee and tea afterwards if you need them before you need to go to car parking. Uh, But it's a call to prayer to seek the Holy Spirit afresh as a church. And if you're committed to this church, try and get at least one day uh, this week. We need to take prayer more seriously. I was talking to our pastors in Nidri, Mez and Jez. Uh, some of you may know that they've started meeting. And Mez, I said to Mez, can one of you come and lead the prayer meeting, focus on Nidri on Tuesday? He said, well, we both can't come because we're already meeting for prayer in the morning. Uh, and I said to Mez, well, what day are you meeting? He said, every day from 7 till 9. I said, what, this week? He said, no, every day. Folk at Nidri, that's an amazing commitment. He said, how many is going to come? He said, I don't know. If it's me and Jez, that'll be fine. But other people can come and join us. What a commitment. He said, but I just feel desperately that if we're going to reach the people of Nidri, we need to get down to prayer. We think we're doing well if we have a week of prayer for 45 minutes, you know, once or one week a year. Seven till nine every day. Maybe you can go out to Nidri sometime. Just turn up there, you know, at the new building and just join them for half an hour for prayer. And they spend two hours every day in prayer. And I believe we'll see God at work because they're taking prayer seriously. Recognizing the need of the power of the Holy Spirit to reach onwards and outwards. But I've almost finished. Let's just draw to a conclusion. Uh, the book of Acts records, and it's a wonderful book, you need to read it through, how the apostles carried out the commission to be witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. There's a sense of mission accomplished at the end of, uh, of Acts 28. 
yet they were just ordinary people. In, in fact, the Jewish authorities, when they met with them, said they were unschooled, illiterate people, just ordinary people, but they took note of them that they'd been with Jesus. That's Acts 4, verse 13. But they turned their world upside down. Uh, John Stock comments, it would be impossible to explain the progress of the gospel apart from the work of the Spirit. Yet the mission is not finished. For the mission is not just to the ends of the earth, it's to the end of time, as Jesus told his followers. The mission continues after Acts 28. It it continues today. Uh, Some of us went and heard an amazing message from Mark Driscoll, the American pastor who's at Mars Hill Church in, in, in Seattle. And they have a church planting network. I think Mark said they've got 450 churches they've planted and they're starting to plant now in Africa and Latin America. It's called the Acts 29 Network. Why is it called Acts 29? Because it's carrying on after Acts 28. God is still at work. And, and, and you know, as we think of our verse of the year, uh, and I don't know if you noticed, uh, if we get the verse up again, there's a sort of, meant to be sort of circles around there, and it's focused on the UK. It's not focused on Jerusalem. It's meant to show us that the centre of our world, our Jerusalem, is right here. Uh, and I've often thought that, like the day of Pentecost, Uh, We've got this wonderful privilege that people come from all over the world to live in Edinburgh, from every country. We probably have 30, 40 nationalities worshipping with us here in Edinburgh. We have an international fellowship. You can join and reach out to students and people who can have an influence as they go back when they they hear and receive the gospel. Uh, We can witness to the ends of the earth for our mission family. We're going to hear about this in a moment as we pray together. But that's our privilege and our responsibility, our commission. Um, another preacher, John MacArthur, the American pastor, not our church treasurer, um, uh, said this, Today, believers continue to have the responsibility for being Christ's witnesses throughout the world. The sphere for witnessing is as extensive as the kingdom. All the world that was and is the mission for the church until Jesus comes. And he then comments, There is a sense in which believers do not even choose whether or not to be witnesses. They are witnesses. And the only kind of question is how effective their witness is. And the reason why we're ineffective as witnesses never lies with God, but with us. For God has promised, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Let's seek that power and strength.